Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 533, Case Closed on the West Memphis Three. This will be our very last episode before we take our mid-season break. And to answer this one more time for everyone so it's clear, we are not done with the West Memphis Three case. We are just taking a break. We're going to do season six. And in probably a few months when we're done with this one, we're going to come back to the West Memphis Three case, back to season five where we're going to discuss alternative suspects. Now, we're having to record this. It's a little different than normal. We're recording this prior to episode 533 dropping because I'm going out of town with my kids, taking our summer vacation. And so what we did is we put a post up for those of you that don't know on social media and asked for any questions about the case, any lingering questions from the last you know, 32 episodes of the West Memphis 3 case, the whole first half of the season. So you'll notice a lot of these questions may not relate directly to the episode you just heard, but that's because we're recording this prior to that episode dropping. And with that being said, we've got uh, two short ad breaks today, so we're going to take one right now, and then we'll get started. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, first we have a question from Raven. Had Jason, Damien, and Jesse ever hung out as a trio before? The idea that Jason and Damien would call him up and invite him to the woods is even less believable if they hadn't ever spent time together, just the three. From my understanding from speaking with all three of them, they never did hang out as a trio. 
they had spent time together in groups, you know, whether they were at the skating rink or shooting pool or just in the neighborhood. But as far as I understand, they never just the three of them went and did something together. That's just not something that ever happened, according to the three of them. Okay, and while we're on this subject, Kelly writes, did Jesse, Damien, and Jason attend the same high school at some point? Had Jesse dropped out? Why was he not in school but was on the wrestling team? Wasn't that through the high school? So a couple things there. They did all three attend the same schools. I believe off the top of my head, Jason moved to West Memphis in middle school. I think he went to Memphis before on the other side of the bridge. And they did all go to the same school. Uh, Jason, actually, his first interaction with Jesse was getting beat up by Jesse on the playground. So they weren't exactly friends. But they did go to the same school. Damien had dropped out of school. And then, yes, Jesse, I think in the ninth grade, had also dropped out of school. Now, the wrestling, that was not through the school. This wasn't high school wrestling. It was, you got to remember, this is early 90s. Jesse was training to be a professional wrestler, like in the WWF days. So that's what he was doing that evening when he went to go wrestle. It had nothing to do with the school or school activities. It was uh, training to be a pro wrestler. John says, did Jason or Jesse have any habits or interests or physical evidence that the detectives tried to link them to Satanism? Not necessarily. Jesse, as far as I know, nothing at all. You know, But what they had on Jesse was, during the interrogation, him saying that he was going to these occult meetings with Damien. Uh, Jason, they tried to, Jason liked to write and draw. And so they tried to use some of his writings and drawings. And they literally counted in trial how many black t-shirts that he owned. Uh, and so that was the extent of his occult involvement. But there was really nothing, you know, the trial wasn't much about Jason. As we've said, it was, it was all about Damien and Jason's, you know, I think that this, the prosecution strategy was simply throw a little bit of shade on, on Jason that they could with Michael Carson and maybe the fiber evidence and the lake knife, and then other than that, just by his association with Damien. Nancy says, was Damien being a Wiccan brought up in the trial, and was there any explanation of what that meant? It was. Uh, Damien, when he was on the stand, did get to explain that he was a Wiccan and what that meant, but it was just it was just twisted and turned. You know, the cross-examination did not go well for Damien, and uh, prosecutors still tried to spin that back into Satanism. By any, remember, you're talking about a teenager here, so... Uh, whatever he had written or said or he was reading, they kept trying to spin that and bring it back around to Satanism. And that was a lot of the reason why Dale Griffiths was testifying, because he was analyzing Damien's writings and, and drawings and explaining how all of this means that somebody with the, remember the term, the trappings of occultism. Peggy Ann says, if Jesse had committed the murders which, quote, made him so sick he vomited, then why would he then go back to the police to report the suspicious guy as a possible suspect? Because he didn't do it. The only simple answer to that is he didn't do it. You know, th- it was May 15th when, when he went and reported uh, the man we know now as Tracy Laxton, uh, when him and his friends were scared of the guy because he was in the woods and the murders had just happened. To me, the only explanation for that is he didn't know who committed the murders and he was scared. You know, he, that's why he did it. So I think it's probably a rhetorical question, really, but in my opinion, he, he did that because he didn't know who committed the crimes because he wasn't there. What about Judge Burnett? What's he doing now? Is he still a judge? He's not. As a matter of fact, uh, he was, I, I, I don't know what he's doing right now, but he was elected to the Arkansas State Senate. And I know that, you know, Damien and the defense team were almost campaigning for him. They wanted him to get elected as they were going through their post-conviction relief because the way it works in Arkansas is any post-conviction claim you make goes back to the original judge. You know, so they're kind of ruling on their own rulings. 
And uh, it's just not, obviously, common sense tells you that's not a good situation, especially considering this case, a lot of what they were fighting against were the were Burnett's own rulings. So when he started running for state Senate, you know, I know Damien specifically, he wrote about in one of his books that they were they were pulling for him to get elected because if he got elected, then it would vacate his judge seat and a new judge would come in. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Brandy says, has there been anyone in the DA office or law enforcement at the time of the murders come out to say they felt like the West Memphis Three were innocent or being railroaded? Or even if they believed it then, has anyone changed their opinion publicly? Not really publicly. I got to kind of dance around this a little bit. The answer is yes. There are law enforcement officers that were directly connected to the investigation that very recently have certainly uh, given the impression that they don't believe they got the right guys and actually use that term specifically railroaded. And there's a lot of remorse there. Nothing's been said publicly yet. Um, but uh, there, yeah, th- there has been. I mean, of course, we have on the record the the one diver that admitted that they, you know, he's law enforcement who admitted that he was told that there was a knife in the lake, what the knife looked like and where to find the knife, uh, the lake knife. But um, this is someone else. There's, there's one other person that definitely has some regrets about the investigation and the arrest. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about that when we come back from our, our break. Linda says, did Dan Stidham or anyone else provide any insight as to why Jesse decided not to testify against Damien and Jason? Well, yeah, and I mean, and Jesse did. You, you see a little bit of in Paradise Lost, but if you read the transcripts of Jesse's interviews with uh, with Dan Stidham, you'll see that there were some issues there with Jesse's understanding of the process, and and specifically, if you look at the August uh, 1993 interview with Stidham, back, this is back when Stidham thought that he was guilty, and they were talking about a plea deal, and you get a little hint as to what the issue was there. Jesse, when some was confronted with someone right in front of him. Would, would just take any suggestion given to him and agree with whatever was said uh, for all the reasons we've talked about many times leading up to this. But when it was said that you need to you know, go into court and, and testify or you need to testify against the other two and, and that's, the, that's the arrangement for the plea deal, that's when Jesse said, I don't know if I could be lying to lawyers, which was another good indicator of how he viewed Dan Stidham. He's talking to his lawyer and he says, I don't know if I can lie in front of these lawyers. And that was in the middle of him confessing again as to what he did and agreeing that he was part of it, saying that it wasn't a lie, but it, it took him back when he, when he had to lie, as he put it, in front of lawyers. And uh, I think Dan mentioned this a little bit in our interview that Jesse just didn't think it, you could. He didn't think you could, you could lie in court, which obviously you're not supposed to. It was a very simplistic way of thinking, but Anytime he was he was presented with the idea of having to go under oath in a courtroom and lying, his understanding of the system was that you just can't do that, so he wouldn't do it. And you know he's he said several times that you know he just can't doesn't think it's right to to lie against those guys. Jesse is so inconsistent because it all depends on who's in front of him at, at, at whatever time, whether it's police officer or his attorney or the prosecutor. But what he was never willing to do was go into court under oath and lie. Shannon says, overall, are there any pieces of evidence that give you, Bob, pause, even if slight, about the innocence of the convicted men? That's a really good question. And the answer is, it's no. I mean, there's, there's nothing. To, it, when you look at the investigation, and, I, and I've talked about my process many times, but and when you would have heard this in this week's episode, when you begin your investigation with a conclusion already in mind, everything looks bad everything everything you're looking for things to fit your theory so 
the people that are looking into this case from the perspective of the three are guilty, and I'm going to prove to you the three are guilty, well, then it's easy to start picking things apart like, well, for example, let's say Damien Eccles' alibi. Uh, Damien, the first time he's asked, you know, the, you know, when they're standing in the driveway at Jason Baldwin's house and says, I was, you know, we were together, we mowed the lawn, went to the Sanders house, I think it was three or four or whatever. And then later it becomes, I think it was five or six when we went. And then when they actually interview and timestamp things with the TV episode at seven o'clock, if you're just looking at this from a, a blank slate, what does all this tell us? To me, that that tells us that it wasn't a significant day to him. He's certainly not trying to pre-plan an alibi. He wasn't, you know, he, he didn't have something set up to try to alibi himself. And he just wasn't paying attention to times. He was just kind of guessing at what time do I think that was. And then from Damien's life, it was very different than Jason's. Damien didn't go to school. Damien didn't work at the time. He didn't have a car. Every day was the same. You know, he just kind of wandered around. He'd go see Domini. He'd, he'd walk all over town. And it just nothing stood out as opposed to Jason who was at school and then got done with school and then he had to mow his uncle's lawn which he knew was on Wednesday and then uh, the next day he goes to school and you think about like 9-11 you remember where you were at when you found out about that and it, it kind of sticks in your mind and that's how it was for Jason but for Damien every, every day was just the same but when you look at it from the guilty perspective when you when you begin with a foregone conclusion it's easy to look at that like, look, he lied about his alibi. And that's true of, of just about every aspect of this case, if not every aspect of the case, where it's that cognitive dissonance where you've got a conclusion already decided in your mind. And the only thing you're looking for, I mean, I, I named a few in the episode this week, but there's more and more and more of them. I just, some of the arguments, there's people that I, that to me seem like they are very, very intelligent people. And I just can't, I just sit there and shake my head. Uh, not that I'm judging or I'm anything, you know, maybe this, who knows, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. I'm not, but, but for me, looking at it, it's like, how can you just explain that away? As an you know, example, when, when Jesse is giving his Bible confession, you know, the Bible confession, the Bible confession, and the Bible confession, he got everything wrong in specific sensory details, you know, not little things uh, like bindings and stuff. Like, where did it happen? We were standing there. I could see the pipe bridge. We were 15 feet away. The water was over my head. That is completely completely false and they just will breeze white right by it because it doesn't fit their conclusion that they've already determined their mind to be true and and so the you know the the person with that guilty decision in their mind already looks at that and says look he confessed again that's another confession that's guilt that's all they want to say is it's another confession in my opinion when you're looking at it with an open mind objectively in your analyst, what is he saying? What is he remembering? And he's getting it all wrong. But then he gives the vivid detail step by step of what happened at the trailer park that night when Connie slapped uh, Stephanie Dollar's son. You know, and the police were there at the time the boys went missing. That he remembers. So to me, when you're looking at that objectively, that is clear and convincing evidence as it was to Dan Stidham, who had nothing to gain by continuing to represent Jesse after this point. It's clear and convincing evidence that he doesn't know what happened, and he was absolutely at the trailer park at the time the boys went missing. But other other people will look at it who have already made their decision, and and just he confessed again. That's that's the fourth confession or fifth, whatever it is, and, and he must be guilty. So, and that's why I had a little bit of pause in answering this because there are those little things. But when you look at them from the beginning with a clean slate, openly and objectively, 
there is just nothing. And I, I, I say it repeatedly, but I'm not exaggerating. There is nothing at all that ties those three boys then, men now, to this crime. And so, no. And, and that's what, when you go back to before we went into the investigation of the investigation, when I said, I would have went this way. If, if I was investigating this case from the beginning, we gathered the evidence. We know the, what the medical reports say. We have a profile of the crime scene. We have kind of a pool of who the suspect should be. I would begin there. But the problem is the police went here. So it, me, as a 1993 investigator, never, ever would have even knocked on Damien Eccles' door. I, th I think the whole case is ridiculous. I, I'm shocked. Well, I'm not shocked they got convicted because of, I, I know now how our criminal justice system actually works. And you'll, you're about to see in two weeks when we launch season six just how ridiculously easy it is to convict someone with no evidence. And I think you'll be shocked when it happens, but that's a long, long, long answer. The short answer is no. There is no evidence that gives me pause, in my opinion, and you can call me wrong, you can call me biased, and call me whatever you want. But in my, in my opinion, there is zero, zilch, none, no possibility whatsoever that these three had even any inclination, anything to do with, or any knowledge of these murders, and I have no pause in, in making that statement. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Joe says, since the West Memphis Three convictions were based on circumstantial evidence, has there been discovery of any new evidence that may point to their guilt in all of these years? Is what was known or presented at trial all there was? So, no, th there hasn't been. And that's what I was talking about in this week's episode was if you have the right person, time and technology should help your case. Okay, so when we have advancements in science and we can do better DNA testing and better fingerprint analysis and fiber testing and things like that, if you got the right person, that testing over time should only help your case. And in this case, all it has ever done is hurt it. Anytime something's tested for DNA, it excludes any of the West Memphis Three and has included other people. The, the fiber evidence with new technology and new methods, it actually wasn't new methods, it was done wrong the first time, but proves that the fibers had nothing to do and no connection back to the homes of Jason or Damien. Uh, witnesses recanted and came forward and said they were, they were lying, whether it be for reward money or they were coerced by police. It's just as time has gone on in this case, the state's case has just fallen apart. And that's a big part of what resulted in the Alford plea. And I'm not going to get into that debate again, but when Scott Ellington, I'm sure, was looking at this case and, and considering if they order a new trial and I have to go back to trial, what do I have left? And there wasn't anything there. Not only did he not have nearly the strength of case that they had 20 years before that, but on top of that, now the defense had a lot stronger case. They could actually present exculpatory evidence in the trial, and they knew that. So, no, time and technology should always help your case if you have the right people. 
In this case, time and technology has done nothing but destroy the state's case over time. So, no, there's been nothing new. Christy says, are Damien, Jason, and Jesse fighting for actual innocence like Carrie Max Cook did? They are, but not in the same way. Um, Carrie Max Cook, after he, he, he took his Alfred plea or Nolo plea, spent 20 years trying to find evidence for actual innocence. And most of it was just, you know, just attacking the court records and things. It was it was only in the last two years when the current DA in Smith County, Texas, agreed to offer immunity to the boyfriend of the victim in his case, who admit, then admitted that he'd lied on the stand, uh, where his conviction, his NOLA, was, was vacated. So he's no longer, well, once the CCA finally rules on it, on the judge's ruling, uh, will no longer be a convicted felon. But Kerry's been fighting this for, for 20 years. In the case of Damien and Jason and Jesse, there's still a fight, but it's 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 different. You've got three different defendants who have three different lives. You know, when when Jesse got out, Jesse Miss Kelly went right back into his 1993 life. He moved right back in to the same trailer with his dad, living the same life. And as he got older, as his dad has, has suffered in health, Jesse has started taking care of him. And you know, I think a lot of, with, with for Jesse, he just went back to life as usual. Uh, Jason, in a lot of ways, I feel like Jason is still, Jason is still back there. You know, he he's fighting. He's the most aggressive, you know, him and his partner, John Harden, or, you know, were the first to jump in and, and work with us to try to find the evidence. Um, you know, one of the first questions I asked all three, well, not really Jesse. I didn't have that much of a conversation with Jesse, but Jason and Damien was, you know, there's new technology out there. You know, there's there's more testing that can be done. Is there, any, you know, or do you have any concerns about that? And both of them said, no, test everything. Find something to exonerate us and clear our name. So Jason is more actively fighting. And and Damien is, is, I think you heard a lot of that in his interview. Damien is just trying to live his life. You know, his his, his whole being is focused around positivity and bright things in life. And this was an 18-year black hole for him. It was hell. It was torture for him. And he doesn't, I can tell you from many conversations I've had with him, he doesn't want to relive it. And, and, and Damien doesn't honestly know a lot about the case. You know, he had a great defense team and a lot of support. But, you know, if you ask him specific questions about the, the crime scene or, or the investigation, he doesn't really know because he, he just wants to forget that time in his life and move on. But with that being said, Jason and Damien are well aware of what we're doing, why we're taking the break, and what's to come, and what we're working on, and and both are ecstatic, um, and in some cases very emotional about what's going on now, and and they do desperately want to clear their names. They don't. They they've been living with this with this moniker of being murderers, child murderers, for twenty five years now. And, uh, you know, neither of them have ever talked about anything about compensation or, or suing or anything like that, but both of them just want their names clear. And, and I think that it's hard to even live a normal life for them until that happens. Okay. Ruth writes, if the boys killer is ever caught and convicted, will Damien, Jason and Jesse be automatically exonerated and will they be entitled to any type of monetary compensation? Nothing is automatically. In order for that to happen, you have to convince the prosecutor to consider new evidence, which Scott Ellington has said publicly that he will and would consider new evidence. 
And if the evidence seems to be strong enough to point towards another suspect, then you, you have to get him to that point where it's not just hearing it, but actually engaging in an investigation against another suspect, which would involve law enforcement. And then if it was proven that someone else did it through that process, then again, it's not automatic, but how that process would or should look, say we found uh, as a complete, just wildcard example is not what I think happened, but just as an example, say they found, they found DNA that matched a serial killer in the area that was on you know, the, the body of one of the boys, for example, uh, which again, this is just, I'm, I'm just using an off the wall hypothetical on purpose here. Uh, but say that happened. Uh, then what should happen is the prosecutor's office should begin pursuing charges on them and then take it upon themselves to take the case before a judge and propose to drop the charges against the convicted three, because now they know who did do it. So they also know who didn't do it. Uh, and it should be a smooth process. It should take away, it's not automatic, but it should take away the adversarial relationship that typically exists in post-conviction work where you don't have the prosecutor fighting against the defense trying to prove the innocence of their clients. A prosecutor uh, with any amount of ethical standard whatsoever that sees clear and convincing evidence against someone else should take the steps on their own to drop the charges against the convicted. Jillian says, do we know if the kids' classmates were questioned? Perhaps one of the boys mentioned their plans to run away or go to their hideout at school. It's possible that they had planned this earlier than we think. Also, were their teachers ever questioned? Teachers were questioned. Some classmates were questioned. I uh, remember Aaron Hutchison, who was questioned many times and changed his story repeatedly. One thing that did always seem to remain consistent with Aaron Hutchison's story was meeting up with Michael and Christopher after school and asking if they could go play after school. Who knows if that actually happened because the stories changed so much. But there were indicators during the door-to-door -door questioning of classmates of theirs that they were going to run away. You know, we had, uh, and I can't remember all the names right off the top of my head without researching it, but I believe the the Bailey kid said that Michael told him he was going to go get Christopher. We had one of the, a girl that was in their class that said Michael told her that they were going to go to his hideout behind Robin Hood. Um, but that all happened after school. That, I don't think there was any indications during school that they were going to all run away together. Uh, I don't think that was the plan at all, or at least nobody knew about that. Now, we, we also have during the door-to-door -door questioning, we, we have the Bobby Posey, who s says that they told him he was going to run away, and Carlos Seal, that'll happen with them. Uh, so we know, like, at that point, in my opinion, it seems much more to me that it was just an afternoon of wanting to play. Think about Pam Hobbs. In her interactions with Stevie that day, you know, Michael comes over, he wants to play, he was all excited to go play. He certainly wasn't running away, he was happy, he was in a good mood. Um, but I think as things unfolded throughout the day, in my opinion, they, they, they wanted to run away at that point. Paula says, is there an estimated time regarding the length of the break from season five? I can't really give you an estimate, only because we know that we need a couple of months to take care of some things with the case and to, and to chase some things down and, and get some things straightened out. And I don't know how long those developments will take. Uh, it's just, it's typically what we're talking about is not a very quick process. So, so there's that. There's also the fact that we're, we're starting season six here in two weeks that that season will be much shorter than this one, of course, because there's not three defendants. Uh, there's only one, but we're not going to cut that one off in the middle to come back to this. So the plan is to work our way through season six and then come back to five. A typical season is around six months. And just like any, we don't know how long it's going to take. So if I had to give an estimate, 
I would say probably beginning of 2019, about six months from now, is probably when we'll, we're going to swing back on to season five and re-pick up the, the West Memphis Three case for the uh, the new investigation into the alternate suspects. Okay, and our last question is from Liz. Bob, if you had to do it all over, would you cover this case again? Absolutely, 100%. And, and, and believe me, there were times during this process where I've regretted it. It's one thing that's been tough is our typical method of crowdsourcing through social media has been less effective during this case than any other. We've had cases where it has literally solved cases for us and made huge, huge differences, uh, whether it's raising funding or testing or whatever it is. In this case, there's so there's 25 years of emotional arguments built into social media. And it it certainly has, has been exhausting at times. But you know, when I when I talk to some of the victims' families, when I talk to Jason and Damien, you know, and, and I think I think one that was the most moving for me was when I spoke with Ryan Clark, Chris Byer's brother. And you hear despite what people on the internet are saying, uh, and, and this is not true of all the family members, but there are people that were, you know, related to the victims that desperately, desperately want closure in this case, that do not think the right three people were convicted. And seeing how moved they are because just because of the effort that we're making, we have no guarantees. We've never made a guarantee we're going to find the evidence and solve this case. That's always the goal. But just that someone still cares, and not just someone, but hundreds of thousands of you that are engaged with us and trying to get to the truth is so meaningful to them. And it's those little reminders that uh, keep us going and keep me going specifically and say that we're we're doing this despite what someone might say about bias or agendas. It's all bullshit. None of that is the case with me. I can speak specifically for me. Never had any agenda with this. I didn't have any preconceived bias. It's all about just finding the truth and to know there are people out there that know that's what we're looking for and desperately want it and need it. That's enough for me to say that no, I would, I, I would, I would not take it back. I have enjoyed this season. I've, I've learned a lot, and hopefully, some of you have learned a lot throughout the process. And I think that we're making a difference. And I cannot wait to come back after the break when Jason, Jesse, and Damien will not be a topic of conversation anymore, because we have, you know, it's from my investigation, as I said on the show, ruled them out one hundred percent completely, and I. And you may have thought I was a little harsh at the end of the the main episode to the people that think otherwise, but I'm not insulting anyone, but I'll probably be more harsh now in telling you that this is just not the podcast for you. I'm not the guy for you. If you still, after all of this, still believe that the three are guilty, that's okay. You can have that opinion, but you're you're not going to change my mind. Not because I have some preconceived biases, because I spent eight months, 40 to 60 hours a week myself and Mike, digging through. And there's so much more that you guys haven't heard on the podcast yet that hopefully you are going to hear that happens behind the scenes in the investigation. There's just no way these kids had anything to do with these murders. And the arguing with people who believe otherwise is just not productive. I don't believe that some of these people, no matter what is presented, will never change their mind. And so all I was trying to get across there and, and, and what I'm reiterating here is I'm done arguing with you. You can, you, you can go to your other social media pages, the, the Bash Bob Ruff pages, and you can go to your, 
your your own little podcast and you can go to your YouTube channels and talk about how horrible I am. I don't care. I am done engaging with you. And I think that the majority, 95, 99% of our audience is sick and tired of it. And they're ready for us to get back to doing what we do, which is trying to solve this case, which is exactly what we're going to do when we start back up at the beginning of next year. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right, five seconds of silence. I say five seconds of silence. Five seconds of silence. Five seconds of silence. I'm the EP. On this project, that's true. It is. <laughs> All right, here we go, Bobby. Ready? Mm-hmm. Yep. What is this? How many follow-ups have we done? Christ, I don't know. <laughs> well, together, I guess. We started them um, we, we, in we, November of 2016. So that's a year. We're coming up on. A year and a half, that's 50, like 75, something like that. 75 follow-ups. Right. Never get any better at it. Remember when we used to drink during recording follow-ups? Yes, that's a fun fact. God, my nose. Don't stop itching. Hmm. Boom! Right? Mic drop. Because his name's Mike, so he dropped. Did you see? That was... Method actor. He's a method actor. Brilliant actor. Brilliant. <laughs> it's great.